You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. tuning in this morning. We're glad that you're with us. Turn to Acts chapter 24. A couple of weeks ago, I had an interesting experience. Um, I was at Aldi uh, checking out the checkout line there at Aldi, and there was a uh, senior adult uh, lady who was uh, over another aisle, and she had quite a few groceries uh, that she had purchased. And I heard this conversation that was taking place that kind of got my attention, and I saw two young men, probably early 20s, uh, maybe late teens, who were offering to help this lady with her groceries. Uh, and I just, it just caught my attention. Uh, random acts of kindness sometimes get our attention more than uh, some of the uh, rudeness and anger that we often see. And this caught my attention. These two young men were very, very friendly, very nice. And they were there. Uh, they come in and, and were actually in the exit side, where you go out of Aldi. And I, I just, it just caught my attention. Uh, that these two young men would be so friendly and so kind to offer to take this lady's groceries out of the car. I noticed that they were both wearing white button-down shirts and black dress pants, and they had a, a tag on their shirt, and they were representing the Mormon church. And they were there not only to help this lady with her groceries, but I would imagine that between Aldi and her car, they began to talk about their religion, what they believed, and took an opportunity to share with them what they believed. I think that was probably the whole purpose of what was happening there. That same week, I was in Subway getting some lunch, and as I walked into the Subway, there were a group of men that were sitting to my left and as I was standing in line to get my, get my sandwich, get my lunch to go, I, I overhear an argument that is happening to my left. And these three men, I don't know anything about them. Uh, they were there on their lunch break. Uh, I don't think all these men came together. I think they actually were sitting close together and this conversation began to happen. The conversation was about end times and what the Bible has to say about the end times. And... Um, it turned into an argument. And what was really interesting is I'm standing there in line at, at Subway. There were a lot of people standing there. And uh, the argument that was happening to the left, you couldn't, you couldn't get away from it. Uh, they were loud. And uh, it was getting rather uh, angry and, and furious. And there was this debate back and forth about what the Bible has to say about end times. And I'm standing there because I'm listening. And of course, they're talking about the Bible and I hear the Bible being taken completely out of context. I hear the Bible being misused. And it's, trust me when I tell you, it's all I can do to stand there and not engage. But I knew if I engaged, it wasn't going to help anything. More than likely, it would have poured more gas on the fire. So I just minded my own business. What's interesting is in that same week, I had, I had two different occurrences of people talking about the Bible, talking about what is true, what is false. I saw two groups of people who were very passionate about what they believed. I saw one group of people who were, who were reaching out in love to try to help, to try to convey a message. I saw another group who were just arguing, very angry about what they believed. Now, of course, as you would imagine, that 
with the two young men who were representing Mormonism. Um, it is a false gospel. It is a false truth. It is a, it is a truth that is not truth at all. Uh, but what got me, what got my attention more than anything was their, their sheer kindness for a stranger. Uh, and yet they were passing along misinformation about what the Bible actually doesn't teach. But they were doing it in such a way that it was very kind, very gentle, and trying to be a help to a woman who, who needed help. While at the same time, men who were saying they represented Christianity and represented the gospel were arguing with each other, and it was very hateful, uh, about what the Bible says about the end times. We left Paul last week in the middle of a riot. And Paul uh, has been taken into the garrison. Uh, he's been examined. He's been talked to. And at one point, they decide that they're going to, that they're going to whip him with a cat of nine tails to get the truth out of him until they find out that he is a Roman citizen. Once they find out he's a Roman citizen, everything changes because the law would not allow them to bind a Roman citizen, to not give him a fair trial, to not... Uh, the, the, the law said that they couldn't whip him the way they were planning on whipping him. So everything changed in that moment. And the one thing that didn't change was the hatred of the Jews for Paul in that city. Uh, that hatred continued to boil over the top. That hatred continued to thrive. And as Paul was being held, and he's being held not because he's done something wrong. In fact, Paul has done nothing wrong. And Paul is going to argue that very case in chapter 23 that that what he's being held for, what he's being accused of, is not true at all. But Paul is accustomed to that. Every town that he's went into, every city that he's went into, he's been accused from everything from blasphemy. He's been accused of teaching against the law, which he has not done. He's been accused of saying that the circumcision doesn't matter anymore. He hasn't said that at all. So everywhere Paul goes, Paul's being lied about. He's being ambushed. He's been beaten, thrown out of town. As a matter of fact, while Paul is being held, 40 Jewish leaders take an oath. They hate Paul with such a, with a, with such a profound hatred that, that they take an oath, and within Judaism, taking an oath is a very, very big deal. And these Jews, probably some of them leaders, take an oath that they're not going to eat any more food, that they're going to absolutely fast continually until Paul is dead, until they kill him. Well, they begin to hear a, there's a plot that's being tossed around that, that they're going to ask for Paul to come to another meeting so they can investigate a little bit more about, his, about what he's saying and about some of the accusations that have been lodged against him. But, but that is just a, a plot that is trying to get Paul out of the barracks and get Paul into a situation where they can attack him and beat him to death. So this plot is being cooked up behind the scenes to get Paul to be released out of the barracks just long enough to where these people can attack him and finish the job that they'd started a chapter back. Well, Paul's nephew finds out about this plot. He goes to Paul. Paul tells him to go to the Roman officials. The Roman officials hear about it, and they put together 400 soldiers, 70 horsemen to get Paul out of town. They're going to get Paul completely out of Jerusalem. They're going to take him 60 miles north to Caesarea, and there they're going to have a trial. But the goal at this point is to protect Paul, to not let this mob get out of control to the point where they're going to kill him in the street. So they decided to take him out. Uh, the leader, Lysias, writes a letter to Felix and basically says to Felix, look, uh, he's done nothing wrong. Felix is the governor of the area in Caesarea. So Lysias, the, the official in, in Jerusalem, writes a letter to, to Felix to say, look, we're sending this man to you. We want you to, to take care of him, to put him on trial 
to see what's going on, to, to hear the case against him. But we've not found anything that he's done that requires him to be put to death. So we're getting him out of Jerusalem and getting him away from the mob. Paul has been beaten. He's been held as a prisoner with no actual charges. He was almost beaten to death with a cat of nine tails. If he had not mentioned that he was a Roman soldier, they would have beaten him to death. And all while this is going on, all while his, his rights are being trampled, his testimony has made no difference other than the fact that he's a Roman citizen. Nobody seems to want to listen to him. No one seems to care. And all while all this is going on, what's amazing to me is that Paul keeps his focus on sharing the gospel with those who need to hear it. If you remember when, when God called him after his Damascus Road experience and after God spoke to Ananias and told Ananias that this is a man whom I'm set apart who's going to go to the Gentiles with the good news. God also said that he would stand before kings and great leaders. Guess what's about to happen? Paul is going to be placed before Felix, who is a pretty influential leader, especially in that northern area right around Caesarea. And what do you think Paul's focus is going to be? Do you think Paul's going to focus on how much he's been hurt? Do you think Paul's going to focus on how his rights have been trampled? Do you think, how, do you think Paul's going to focus on uh, how he's been mistreated, how he should be set free? Do you, do you think Paul's going to focus on his right to be free because he's done nothing wrong? Do you think Paul's going to focus on that? What do you think Paul's going to bring up to Felix? Well, Paul is going to defend himself. In chapter 24, he does that. Uh, Ananias, the high priest, and another guy by the name of Tertullus, make a 65-mile trip from Jerusalem all the way to Caesarea to make sure that their case against Paul is heard and that in their minds, he deserves death. And what we're going to find in chapter 24, of all that's going on and Paul defending himself, what Paul is really going to focus on more than anything else is the opportunity that he has to tell Felix the truth. And what you're going to find with Paul, even though everything that is going on in his life is complete chaos, matter of fact, his life's been nothing but chaos from the time he met Jesus on the Damascus Road and after three missionary journeys, 8,000 miles, 20 churches planted, Paul's life is still a chaotic mess where he's being mistreated and abused. But what you're going to find is Paul is still an effective witness. And what I want us to pay attention to today is, is Paul's effective witness before Felix, a man who has the power to set him free. And instead of Paul making a, a strong argument how that he ought to be set free, how, how all of his needs need to be met, Paul simply focuses on the gospel, just like we've seen him do over and over and over again. You see, an effective witness is calm. Are we seeing a lot of calmness out there today? Are we seeing a lot of calmness in the couple of weeks to come as we get closer and closer to election day? Uh, are the people that you're talking to and interacting with, are they calm? What about kindness? Are we seeing a lot of kindness and gentleness? Uh, we're not seeing a lot of that, even among those who say they follow Jesus. You see, an effective witness is a calm, it's reasonable, level-headed, consistent. Uh, by contrast, an ineffective witness for Christ is loud, overbearing, cocky, emotional, and oftentimes devoid of scriptural truth. 
Notice Paul's response here. Look at verse, verse 20 in chapter 24. Paul's wrapping up his defense. He's, he's basically destroyed every argument that Tertullus and the high priest has brought as charges against Paul. Paul systematically goes through and destroys each and every one of them. And then in verse 20, he says this, Let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Verse 21, Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. After Paul destroys every argument that's raised against him and every charge that's raised against him, he says to the council, he says, let me tell you why I'm actually here. He says, let's, let's set aside everything that's been said, all the charges that have been brought against me. I've already answered each one of those and basically destroyed them all. But let me tell you the real reason that I'm standing before Felix and why I'm standing before this council and why charges have been brought against me. He says, I have consistently preached and taught and proclaimed the resurrection of the dead. I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you look, at, if you look up the word resurrection in a concordance and you look at all the different places that word is used in the New Testament, guess which book in the New Testament uses the word resurrection more than any other book in the New Testament? The book of Acts. You would think it would be the Gospels. You, you would even think it may be the, even the epistles, and certainly they do utilize the word resurrection over and over again. As Paul says, this is the gospel, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He argues that point in all of his epistles. But in the book of Acts, resurrection is referred to more than, than any other book in the New Testament. So Paul has been consistent everywhere that he's been. He always makes his way to the resurrection. And there's two aspects of the resurrection that, Jesus, that, that Peter and John and Paul, and, a, and especially Paul in the book of Acts, would argue. First, the resurrection of Jesus himself. That that's what changed their lives. That when they saw Jesus alive, everything changed. When Paul met him on the Damascus Road, everything changed. So, so Paul is going to teach and proclaim that I met the resurrected Lord. I met the one you put to death. I met the one that you hung on the cross, and it changed my life. But Paul would also argue a resurrection of the dead in general. In other words, Jesus being the firstborn, the one that one would die and the one who would resurrect, that the prophets predicted would do exactly that. Paul would say, wait a minute, there's another resurrection, another resurrection of the dead. Those who've put their faith in Jesus, those who've put their faith in him will also be resurrected. So Paul would argue that point as well. And it was very divisive among the Jews, and it infuriated them. Whether he talked about the resurrection of Jesus or whether he talked about the resurrection of the dead in general, it infuriated both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And oftentimes, they would get into an argument over the idea of resurrection. So Paul says, the reason that I'm being charged, the reason I'm here is because I teach the gospel of Jesus Christ that includes, as a matter of fact, is required. The gospel, the gospel cannot be the gospel without the resurrection. He says, I teach the resurrection. Notice in verse 22. But Felix, now this is the governor of the area of Caesarea, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, he put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. So he gives orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody, that he should have some freedom and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his knees. Now, what I find interesting about this is that Felix, who's a Gentile governor, knows quite a bit about the way. Now, that's a common phrase that we've seen several times in the book of Acts, talking about those 
who followed Jesus as disciples. Felix has heard about Christianity. Why do you think that is? How is it that Felix in Caesarea has heard so much about Jesus and in fact knows quite a bit about what Christians believe, know, know about what they, what they pronounce as the gospel, what they do as they follow Jesus. How does Felix know this? Well, I think it's because of the church in Jerusalem. I think it's the work that Paul and others have done all the way up in Caesarea. Remember, Jesus spent a lot of time up in Caesarea. Felix has heard. Felix knows quite a bit about the gospel. And it just so happens that the greatest of the apostles are, are, is now in his care, under his orders. And notice what happens next, verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul. Why did he send for Paul? We're going to find out in a little bit. We find out exactly why Felix summoned for Paul to come to him and his wife. And what we find out is that, that over the course of the time that Paul was there, by the way, Paul was held in captivity in Caesarea for two years, it says down at the end of this chapter. Two years of time is going to pass. No trials, no charges, no condemnation to death or otherwise. He, he's just held perpetually for two years. Talk about your rights being trampled. Talk about even within the Roman culture. This was odd and, and unheard of. But over that time, Felix would have conversations with Paul. He would summon Paul and Paul would come out and, and they would have some conversations. Now notice the conversations, verse 25. And as Paul reasoned, notice that, reasoned about righteousness self-control, and the coming judgment. So Felix, who knew quite, quite a bit about Christianity, would hear Paul talk about three specific things that Paul would keep bringing up when they would have these conversations. So Paul, who's been given freedom while even in jail, his friends have the ability to come and tend to his needs. Paul has the ability to continue to do the ministry that he's been called to do, even though he's, within, he's been confined. But as he's being confined, he has the opportunity to meet with one of the most powerful people within the Roman government in Caesarea at that time, and it just happens to be Felix. So he's got a captive audience. And apparently, Felix is somewhat suspicious or intrigued or wants to know more. What does Paul focus on? Now, you would imagine that Paul when he would meet with the guy that could set him free, would spend the majority of his time trying to convince Felix to set him free. I mean, think about the argument that Paul could have made there. Paul could have said, look, I've got a lot of work to do. There's still ministry I can be doing. There's still missions I can be doing. And, and since you know about the way, let me, let me go for free. Let me, let me out of here. Let me go do what God has called me to do. Maybe he could have convinced Felix to just set him free. But I find it interesting that that Paul has conversations with Felix, not about his own freedom, but about the gospel. He says that Paul reasoned about righteousness. Well, what is righteousness? Righteousness is God's standard of right and wrong, that, that God, being the creator of the universe, gets to determine what is right and what is wrong, and he has communicated, us, communicated to us about what that is through his word, through Jesus Christ. 
So there are things that, that are right and there are things that are wrong. And so Paul is having a conversation with Felix about righteousness. No doubt Paul is talking to Felix about the fact that, that Felix himself is born in unrighteousness. And that no matter how much he tries, no matter how much he knows about the Christian faith, that there is no way he can cross from darkness into life unless he puts his faith in Jesus and then the righteousness of Christ is then applied to his life. That no matter how righteous he is, he's always going to fall short. But governors, leaders in the Roman government, they were notorious for having their own standards of righteousness. Not only the standards of righteousness that the Roman emperors and the, and the Caesars would provide, that this is what is true and this is what is false, but these governors who were operating out in the Roman Empire would often have their own standards of what is right and wrong. And, of course, those standards of right and wrong often circled around what was best for them. So I would imagine that, that Felix is really struggling with the idea that there is an absolute truth that an absolute God has given to all creation and that we are separated from that God by our own unrighteousness. Paul also reasoned about self-control. Paul would teach Felix and talk to Felix about having self-control. That flows naturally right out of righteousness and unrighteousness. Self-control. What does that mean? Do not be mastered by your own desires. Do not be mastered by hunger. Do not be mastered by sexual or intimacy or sexual desires. Do not be mastered by, by greed. Do not be mastered by wanting more power, more fame. Paul is saying to Felix that he must be a, a, a person of self-control. And the only way that he can have self-control is through Christ who then lives inside of him, through the gospel. Well, Roman governors and leaders were not known for their self-control. As a matter of fact, Felix had three wives at this particular point. We also know that Felix was a guy who loved money and loved power. So when Paul begins to speak to him about self-control, Felix is thinking about why should I have self-control? Why can I not indulge in the things that, that I desire? What is wrong with that? This God who has set these standards in my life, why should I adhere to that? Why should I listen to you? Why should I surrender to the God that you're proclaiming? And then Paul reasoned about judgment. Now that word judgment specifically has the connotation of condemnation, separation from God, punishment, wrath. And Paul, no doubt, in those conversations looked straight at Felix with a calm voice, with all gentleness and with all love, but with all firmness, and looked Felix right in the eye and says, Felix, if you continue in unrighteousness, if you continue in with a lack of self-control, if you continue to reject the gospel, which, which gives you righteousness that you can't obtain, if you can continue to reject the gospel that gives you self-control through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, then Felix, the only thing left for you is judgment. And it is exactly the same for every person listening under the sound of my voice. You reject Christ, the only thing that is left is punishment, judgment wrath. Paul reasoned with Felix. Paul gave an, a convincing, scripturally supported 
argument for why he should put his faith in Jesus. That knowing about Christianity, knowing about the way, knowing about Jesus is not enough. That it comes down to where you live. It comes down to to what your God really is. And and I am firmly convinced that, that everyone has something they're worshiping. Whether it be the God, the creator of this universe, or some lesser God that is no God at all. Notice Felix's response. I don't know how many conversations happened. I don't know how many times Paul and Felix got together. But I would imagine that every time Paul and Felix got together, the message was the same. It was a well-reasoned, scripturally supported argument. Notice what Felix, notice Felix's response. It says that Felix was alarmed. That word alarmed Different translations put a different English word there, but it really means frightened. Felix was was frightened at what he heard from Paul. Frightened at the fact that there is a standard of right and wrong that he doesn't get to pick. Frightened at the fact that that self-control, a lack of self-control will bring destruction into your life. And certainly, Felix was frightened of the idea of eternal judgment. I mean, think about it. Felix thinks that... He has a lot of power, a lot of influence. Felix would have had a high regard for his own power, for his own ability, for his own influence. Matter of fact, Felix probably believed that he was above judgment, that he, that he would never come under the judgment of anyone. Maybe at the very least the Caesar, if he did something wrong. And matter of fact, later on, and later on, Felix does come under judgment from Rome. But at this particular moment, he thinks he's above judgment. Nothing's ever going to happen to him. And after Paul reasons with him, Felix is frightened. He was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. He tells Paul, I don't want to have any more conversation. I don't want to talk about this anymore. But when I have an opportunity, when I have um, time, when I have... Uh, an opportunity, uh, some time in my calendar, maybe we can get together and talk. But for right now, we're done. Have you ever had that response? Have you ever met someone for coffee or, or lunch and you begin to talk about Jesus and their, resp- their response is fear? And the only way to deal with, with the moment and deal with the fear is, is just to say, you know, I, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Oftentimes when you're sharing your faith with someone, it may not be fear that shows up on the front end. What they may do is try to get you on some other topic to, to quit talking about Jesus and quit talking about the cross and quit talking about the resurrection because the reality is they don't want to have to deal with that truth. Because if Jesus resurrected and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and, and all that he said is true, then, then there's some response Something we should do in response to that. I found that sometimes it's, it's best to just stop, let the Holy Spirit do the work in that other person's life, and look for the next opportunity to bring Jesus up. Two years is going to pass while Paul has been put in prison. I want you to notice what Felix's actual motivation was for these conversations and for keeping him in prison. Look at verse 25. At the same time, he, being Felix, hoped 
that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Now that just blows the whole story up, doesn't it? We would have hoped that Felix was actually wanting to hear about the gospel, actually wanting to hear the truth, actually wanting to know how to find true life. But in fact, what we find out, and, and through Luke's recording of this event, Luke says that the real motivation for Felix wanting to have these conversations with Paul is because he wanted a bribe. He was hoping that Paul would give him money. Maybe give him money to set him free, maybe show him favor, maybe get him out of jail free. Now, why do you think Felix is asking for money? Where, where did he get that idea? Well, no doubt Felix has heard that when Paul came to Jerusalem, he had a large amount of money with him. You know where J Paul got that money, right? He got it from the churches around Asia Minor and all the way over in Athens who gave donations. The church at Thessalonica, the church at Corinth, gave donations to the church at Jerusalem because they were going through a famine. And no doubt, Lysias or someone else or someone of that Roman guard has told Felix, or Felix already knew, that Paul came into town with a whole bunch of money. Maybe he still got some of it. Maybe, maybe he'd like to part with some so he could gain his freedom. So Felix's motivation to talk with Paul has much less to do with the gospel and a whole lot more to do with putting some money in his pocket. But guess what? Paul continues to focus on the gospel. Paul continues to reason about righteousness and self-control and judgment. And, and so it should be with a man who only simply wants to benefit financially from Paul's misfortune. Certainly he was frightened. Certainly Felix was bothered by what he heard because the last thing Felix wanted to hear was that there's a God in heaven who's going to judge him. Maybe that's the last thing you want to hear this morning. With all we got going on in the world, with all the brokenness, can't we have a message that makes us all feel good? Can't we, have, can't we have something out of the Bible about love and peace and joy and how that it's all going to somehow just work out and, and somehow in the end that everybody gets to go to heaven and everybody gets to be part of the kingdom regardless of what you've done in your past and regardless of what you did with the gospel? Wouldn't that be a better message? It may sound better. It may be even make you feel good for a period, but it's not the truth. It's not the truth. This is the same message that Paul shared over and over and over and over again. It's the same message we have to share with you today. The same message we'll have 10 years from now. And that is that Jesus Christ died in your place because you're unrighteous, born in unrighteous, born into sin, born into disobedience, born with a proclivity towards evil. All of us, every one of us, that's what we were born into yet built with a desire to know our Creator, built with a desire to reach out for Him. God knowing that we couldn't fix ourselves, God knowing that we could never correct this and become righteous, He sends Jesus into our world. Jesus <coughs> fulfills the law perfectly. No sin whatsoever in His thoughts and His deeds and His actions. And then Jesus becomes the sacrifice. He, he, he becomes the one who takes all of the wrath for our sins. And then Jesus dies on that cross, and then three days later he resurrects, proving and verifying everything that he taught about heaven, hell, and everything in between. Jesus would say to his disciples that all authority had been given to him. And then he tells the disciples, go make more disciples. Go tell other people about this truth and this love and this peace and this grace that you found. 
And that is our message as a church. It is our message as individuals. And we have a world around us that is more lost now than it's ever been. And we've all been called to be an effective witness to what we've experienced in walking with Jesus. And a reasonable, effective witness is not yelling at someone. A reasonable, effective witness is not demeaning other people, online or otherwise. A reasonable, effective witness is not simply winning an argument. I can remember back when I was working on my master's uh, years ago that one of the first apologetics, actually it was in my undergrad, when I took this, I took this apologetics class, apologetics is, is defending your faith. And man, I just, gosh, I was just loving apologetics. And I became very arrogant. I became very arrogant. And, and I was out there picking fights and picking arguments because I thought I had it all figured out. And I came across just very arrogant. I wasn't gentle or kind or loving. I was firm. I was loud. And I was arrogant because I'd learned some new stuff and I wanted to go show the world how much I knew. I wasn't about leading people to Christ. I was about winning an argument. That's not an effective witness. Let me tell you what an effective witness is. Number one, you might want to write this down. An effective witness is a person who utilizes reason. Utilizes reason. You know, Christianity is often accused or those who follow Jesus are often accused as being ignorant, right? You've heard that a hundred times in both the news media. We're, we're, almost, we're viewed as a group of people who need religion as some kind of crutch to get us through life. So we, we, we believe in all of these fables. We believe in all these things about the, what the Bible says. And, and it's almost like we're kind of tolerated, but not really tolerated, right? We're almost looked at as just a, an ignorant bunch of people who are living in some little fish bowl over here. And we just, just let them alone and, and let them believe whatever they want to be, believe. And you, you're looked at as being ignorant, unlearned, uh, lower than the rest of society. Let's just be honest about how most of the world views those who follow Jesus. And I'm afraid at times that the church has bought into that kind of thinking, that, that we just kind of go back over the same old stories. We don't, we don't use reason. What do I mean by reason? That we have an intelligible, intelligent argument to make that is reasonable. That if Jesus, in fact, resurrected from the grave, and by the way, nobody's ever been found. No argument that says Jesus' body over here or the disciples stole the body or he was never dead and, and he, when he was on the cross, he didn't actually die. When they put him in the tomb, he came back. There's all kinds of theories. But if Jesus died and he did and Jesus resurrected three days later and he did, that's a game changer. That's a world changer. And that's an intelligent argument that we need to be making because I can tell you, you can go out there and look at all the evidence you want. You can look at all the arguments you want and you're going to come back to this reality. And the reality is this, that on that day, on that hillside, Jesus Christ died. And three days later, something happened at that tomb. And if we would just entertain for a little while that maybe, in fact, Jesus did resurrect, there's nothing greater that's ever happened in our world. Well reasoned. Did you know that when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How do you love God with your mind? Well, getting into God's Word, knowing what it actually says rather than what somebody else says about it. 
that to be an effective witness, we've got to use reason. And reason, when we're talking with someone, that it is a, a reasonable, intelligent argument that, that we're following Jesus not because of a fable. We're following Jesus because he's real. We're following Jesus because he beat death. And there's more than enough evidence to that reality. You have a powerful argument. Know the gospel and share it. You're not some kind of less than citizen. You're not some kind of less than person. You have, in, in God's word and in Christ, all that you need. Holy Spirit living inside of you. Know what you believe and share it widely. Number two. Number two, we're going to focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus. An effective witness is going to focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus. That seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? But far too often in my past when I've tried to talk with someone about what I believe, oftentimes some social issue will come up. Well, what do you believe about drinking? What do you believe about drugs? What do you believe about this? What do you believe about politics? What do you believe about Republicans or Democrats or this, that, and the other? And what I have found out, what I found out is that's just a fear response. Let me explain. Just like when Felix was hearing Paul talk about judgment and righteousness and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it deals with the heart. And oftentimes people don't want to don't deal with some of those issues. They don't want to deal with the fact that, that they have failed. They don't want to deal with the fact that they're filled with the rebellion or the fact that they, that they don't even believe God exists. And when you begin to show them and reason with them about what you believe, Often what they'll do is they'll bring up some other hot issue and the hope is, is that you'll jump on that and you'll run with that and you'll argue about that and you'll focus on that and not the real need of their heart. What is the real need of their heart? Well, a new birth. I think that in that moment when you're sharing the gospel with someone, that is when we're right in the middle of ground zero of spiritual warfare. And one of the tactics that Satan and the forces of darkness will do is get that focus, get that focus on some other side issue. Keep your focus and your conversation on Jesus, what he came, what he did, what he accomplished, his resurrection, his death, and what that means. The gospel. Paul consistently does that. We need to consistently do that, not get caught up in, in all this arguing that's going on right now about what's going to happen with Election Day. Don't get caught up in end-time events. They're important, but that is not the gospel. Listen to me. End-time events and how it's all going to play out is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, and how he can change your life. Don't be chasing after all these other rabbits. Keep your focus. Number three. An effective witness allows the Holy Spirit to do his part and we do ours. What is that? What is that part? Well, Paul's part with Felix was to talk about the truth, to reason intelligently with the truth of Scripture. But Paul could not bring conviction. Paul could not bring about a changed heart. Paul could not change a person's mind simply by a good argument. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We as truth bearers, as, as people who bear the light of Christ in us, we share the truth. But what happens with that, what the person does with that is between them and the Holy Spirit. And we've got to be okay with that. If you can talk somebody into something, somebody else can talk them out of it. You see, the Holy Spirit must draw a person to Christ. And no matter how good your argument or how poor your argument, that's still a work of the Holy Spirit. 
Did you know that success in evangelism is simply being faithful with the truth? Did you know that success, and I use that term loosely, but success in evangelism is simply sharing light in a dark world? But you got to know what your part is. Your part is sharing the truth, living the truth, walking out what it means to follow Jesus. Let the Holy Spirit do the convicting and the drawing and the breaking forth. An effective witness is a kind, gentle, but firm conviction. Kind, gentle, but firm. Effective witnesses have this amazing ability to have incredible kindness, incredible love, incredible gentleness, but yet be firm in their convictions. You can do both. Oftentimes what I see in, in, in Christian world and, and people out there who's, who's trying to do what Jesus called them to do is we, we end up on one spectrum or the other. We end up with so much kindness and gentleness that we never bring up the fact that the person is dead in their sins. Or we, we go to the other extreme where we're just angry. Have you ever met any angry Christians? Man, they're just angry. They're mad at the world. They're mad about everything. And in that anger... What Jesus said we would be known by the most is our love. That, that gets lost somewhere in the translation. We tend to this extreme or this extreme. But did you know that you can be kind and gentle and loving and yet be firm in what you believe? You don't have to look any further than Jesus. Notice how Jesus deals with the woman at the well in John 4. Loving, gentle, kind, but yet firm. Paul has demonstrated that over and over again. He's firm in his convictions. He, Paul's not even arguing for himself here. Paul's arguing for the gospel and for Felix to understand what is true. Fifth, an effective witness is not afraid, even when talking to powerful people. You may have opportunity to be in the presence of people who have big titles and you know, big education and big money and big influence. And the Holy Spirit may prompt you in those moments to bring Jesus up. But you know what the, the often the, the response we give is? Oh, we can't, we can't bring Jesus up here. Oh, no, we, this, is, this is exactly the wrong time to bring Jesus up because this person has influence, this person has power, this person has X, Y, and Z, and if I bring Jesus up, it's just they're, how they're going to see me is going to be totally different, and, and whatever I'm trying to accomplish here won't get accomplished. And, and so far, I'm going to put Jesus in, in the back room. I'm going to put Jesus back here in the back, and I'm just going to kind of leave him back there. But that is exactly why God has led you to the place where there are people who have influence, power, money. God has led you there. You are there for the very reason of bringing Jesus up, and you have nothing to fear. Remember, your argument is sound. You, you, you have reason, more than enough reason, to believe and follow Jesus. You've got more than enough documented evidence right here that the God of this universe is alive and well, and not only that, has invaded our space and works all around us, all the time. You've got all that you need. You have no reason to be afraid, and you certainly have no reason to be ashamed. None whatsoever. So an effective witness utilizes reason. They, they, they focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, an effective witness realizes what their role is and what the role of the Holy Spirit is. They're kind and gentle, but yet firm. 
And they're not afraid. Even when they're around powerful, influential people, people who have their name up in the lights, you have no reason to apologize. You have no reason to be afraid. You have no reason to silence. You have no reason to hide Jesus in the back room. I would offer to you the very reason you're in that moment, the very reason you're there, is to be a representative, an ambassador for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Paul has more kings that he's going to interact with. Paul has more leaders that he's going to be put in front of. Guess what Paul's going to do? Exactly what you've seen with Felix. Even though Felix's motivation was completely wrong, Paul took every opportunity he could to raise the name of Jesus. You're on two sides of this this morning. Everybody that's watching today, you're in one or the other camp. On one hand, just the idea of judgment, righteousness, self-control, the gospel, the idea of Jesus surrendering to him, putting your faith in him brings fear. Your initial response is fear because you understand that that your life at some point is going to end and, and that if without Jesus, if you're, if you're at that moment without Jesus, you know what's next. It's wrath, pain, suffering forever. So there is a fear response, but may I offer to you that that we should turn that fear response into a faith response, a faith that says, I trust, I believe, that, 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 that there is more than enough here to believe. There's not one more thing I need to know. There's not one more thing I need to get in my head. All that is left is for me to receive the gift that God is trying to give to you by faith. That's all that's left. Not a fear response, but a faith response. The Holy Spirit's already prompting you to do it. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit's going to enable you to do it if you'll simply put your trust in Christ. And the other camp is those who've, who've experienced that new birth but are scared to death out in public to even talk about Jesus. You've begun to believe the lies that it's just a fable. Maybe it's time for some courage. In the next coming weeks, we've got a lot that our society is going to deal with in the coming weeks. Maybe, maybe there needs to be some well-reasoned, kind, gentle witnesses out there is the voice of reason in a world that is, quite frankly, at times seems like they're going insane. There needs to be some well-reasoned witnesses out there shining light in dark places. And I believe that that's you. You who've already experienced the grace of God, you've been called to dispense it. Now more than ever, now more than ever, it's time to step up, no longer be afraid but to offer the reason that you have hope. Father in heaven, your goodness and your kindness is far more than we ever deserved. And Father, your gospel has more than enough evidence. There's not anything else we need to know. All that is left is for us to be faithful of what we already know. So Father, whatever camp people are in this morning, watching online, the Father, they would take that next step if it's, salvation, that they would take the next step and express faith, turning from their old life, turning towards a new life. If it's those who are frozen in fear, who've been changed, experienced the rebirth, but are afraid to bring up your name, well, I pray that they would fear no longer. Oh, we trust you. In the coming weeks, we need light to be shined in dark places. Your people have been set apart for this purpose. May we be found faithful in it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 